0: Don't you have ever seen this film Uh, from the 1980s? I'm not really much into horror films. This is a particularly uh, kind of... uh, I don't know if it is a horror film in the two of the word, but it is gruesome in parts. This uh, story, The Fly, is about a scientist, a brilliant scientist, who's doing some crazy experiments to do with teleporting himself so he kind of climbs into a machine because he wants to teleport himself. But during the course of the film, it all starts to go pear-shaped. And he, um, he begins to turn into a fly. And um, as, it, as it begins to go wrong, um, you, you, reckon, you might recognise these guys, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. Maybe when you see their face, you might remember the film if you've seen it. Um, this lady Gina Davis plays the part of a journalist and she says to Jeff Goldblum as it starts to go wrong well he says to her don't be afraid and she replies with the immortal words which are actually on the poster there be afraid be very afraid you know that phrase it's kind of um, I suppose coming to popular culture hasn't it be afraid, be very afraid. Often we use it because we're very ironic in Britain to describe situations where we shouldn't really be afraid. Sometimes when my wife gets very cross with our children, I might whisper to them, your mum's coming, be afraid, be very afraid. Maybe that's not so ironic actually. They really should be. Um, I don't know whether Jane does that when I, can I get cross with our children as well. So they, this idea, be afraid, be very afraid. I'm sure you've heard of that. It's a bit uncool, isn't it, to show that you're frightened of something. And um, maybe that's why we kind of look at it ironically in Britain and we kind of have this idea that it's got some comedy value. What I really want to do with you this morning is just think about the place uh, of fear in our Christian lives. Um it is right here in the passage that we read we didn't have time to touch on this last week because we ran out of time we'll do a little recap but in verse 17 which is what we're going to focus on Peter writes since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear be afraid be very afraid it's an interesting Kind of a uh, concept that isn't it, from a Christian point of view. Well, just to kind of recap a little bit, we were asking the question last week, what is life really all about? This first chapter is a good kind of um, chapter for us to break up and we've been doing that over the last three or four weeks. Up to verse 12, Peter hasn't given any commands of any kind. What he's doing is describing what it means to be a Christian. Verse 1 to 12, really, he's telling them what their experience has been. And he's putting a great big stake in the ground and saying, This is normal Christianity. It isn't religion, it is normal Christianity. And he tells them what God has done in their lives, subjectively, and what God has done in history, objectively, through Jesus, and how those things go hand in hand, and how they've been changed. And look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some tremendous things have happened both in history and in their own hearts. These are suffering, persecuted people. They're not having it all their own way. But something very significant has happened to them. And they know Jesus their saviour. They know God as their father. They know the power of the Holy Spirit in dwelling them and transforming them from the inside out. And their relationship with Jesus is not about what they do for God to earn brownie points, but it is all to do with God reaching out to them and extending a welcome to them through this great message of the gospel. So that's verses 1 to 12. We then get to verse 13. There's a great therefore what Peter's saying is in the light of all this reality this then is how you should live and we saw last week that that's exactly how the Bible always works what you believe will always shape how you behave and we know that's true don't we what you believe will shape how you behave and if you don't get verses 1 to 12 right if you're Theology, if I can put it in that term, is not right. If what you believe about God and yourself and Jesus isn't correct, then your behaviour will also have flaws in it. We need to kind of believe right so that we can behave right. Those two things always go hand in hand. So that's really an overview of the chapter. There's some theory there, doctrine, theology, and then there's some practice, behaviour. How does this, what does this look like in real life and uh, I said to you last week I love chocolate and uh, I was trying to tell you what kind of chocolate I love so that you don't buy me the wrong kind I don't like um, anything with coconut in it Bounty it leaves little coconut bits in your teeth and it's horrible so anything with no coconut in it is fine but Toblerone is really especially nice and uh, the way we broke open from verse 12 was to think verse 13 sorry was to think in terms of Toblerone's because what Peter gives is at least three commands. I've had it since last Sunday, I've actually noticed there's a fourth that we'll maybe move on to look at next week. And, it, and each command that he gives is supported by two kind of supporting ideas. So I want you to think in terms of Toblerone triangles. There's a main command and then two supporting ideas. And uh, so the, the main commands that we looked at, or that we we're going to look at, there's one more maybe next week. We said that Peter is commanding them to live in hope. He's commanding them to live in holiness. And there were two supporting ideas for both of those. And thirdly, we didn't have time to look at the last one. Uh, he's commanding them to live in fear. Three ways to live. The rest of the letter will kind of flesh this out as well. But we're thinking about this idea of living in fear. So that's where we were. That's where we've come to so let's crack on here we are living fear the first thing I want to say is that this is very clearly a massive paradox isn't it we've just been saying how positive Peter's been in verses 1-12 to the whole bible is positive about the good news of the gospel Um, and then Peter speaks about fear, he's been stretching his vocabulary to talk about the splendour and security of of the salvation that God has brought about and then when he gets to this third command he tells them to live their lives in fear and it's a paradox other parts of the Bible another disciple of Jesus a man called John writes another letter just, it's in the Bible just after the letters that Peter wrote and in 1 John he says that perfect love casts out fear so there's a paradox straight away Peter's saying live in fear John is saying perfect love casts out fear and we we have no problem do we accepting that Christianity is about joy and peace and love and all those things but what has fear got to do with it that could be a song out by Tina Turner couldn't it what's fear got to do with it more than this in the gospels Jesus says to different people at different times do not be afraid There was a man, this is an amazing account in the Gospels, there was a man, a synagogue ruler, whose daughter was ill, he went to Jesus, they get interrupted by another woman who's ill, and then someone comes to tell the synagogue ruler, your daughter has died, don't trouble the teacher anymore, and Jesus turns to him and says, do not be afraid. What an amazing thing to say to a man whose daughter's just died. You can't say that unless you're pretty confident that you can do something about that. And that was one of the occasions where Jesus goes and raises this 12-year-old girl to life. And he says to this man, do not be afraid. Jesus says to his disciples on the night before he died, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. So what's Peter going on about here? when he says, live your lives in fear. There's a paradox. I hope you recognise that. Well, the second thing I want to say is that I, I think you'll understand that this kind of fear that Peter's talking about here does not mean to be afraid of God in a slavish kind of way one writer says this this fear of God is full of reverential awe and joy and so far from being inconsistent with love is impossible without it love increases it and this fear is increased by love it is a reverent awe stricken prostration before the majesty of holy love The opposite of this fear is irreverence. The writer goes on, it is furthermore a lowly consciousness of the seriousness of sin and consequently a low consciousness of the dread of offending God, that divine holiness. He who fears in this way fears to sin more than anything else and fears god so much that he fears nothing else besides and the opposite of this fear is presumptuous self-confidence like peter's own earlier disposition which led him into so many painful and humbling situations do you know in the bible how god defines the wicked if we can use that term how does god define the wicked any thoughts? How how does God define the wicked? We you know we know how we define wicked people—murderers and rapists and all the rest of it. How does God define the wicked? Sin. Sin. That's very true. That's very true. Sin is wickedness. The Bible certainly makes that very clear for us. How does God define the wicked? Just turn with me very quickly. Keep your finger on 1 Peter to Romans and chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 page 1130 in the Red Church Bibles. And I'm just looking at verse 18. Romans 3 verse 18. Paul's writing here, not Peter. Peter and he makes a long description he's quoting here from the Old Testament lots of little little clauses from Psalms and other places and in verse 18 he sums up the whole by saying this there is no fear of God before their eyes how does God define what wickedness is it is a lack of the fear of the Lord That quote comes from a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 36, which begins with, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And there is a connection here, isn't there, between this kind of fear of God and the knowledge of what actually constitutes sin. It's interesting to think about the whole subject of atheism. Um, There are people who would do away, if they could, with all thought of God. There are some atheists who are quite militant and and aggressive. The Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It It is as if living life in God's world while ignoring the ultimate reality that shapes all other reality is utterly foolish. in in Proverbs a very famous verse I'm sure it's on your mind as we kind of get into this subject The, the, the writer Solomon of Proverbs says right at the very beginning the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge if you shut God out of your thinking there really can be no true knowledge because the most important reality is God himself or creator the God who is really there but it's interesting, aside from outright atheism, there are many people who claim to believe in God but live like an atheist. Isn't that true? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, one of the things I do as a minister, I sit on a committee um, that is uh, a government body to do with the teaching of RE in schools. It's a statutory thing. Uh, and uh, this week, the committee that I sit on is approving the syllabus for the next five years for teaching RE in schools and uh, so on Wednesday we were there in the meeting and there were some stats shown to us which are designed to shape the way RE's taught. It's a shame that it's over five years because the last syllabus, was two th- the last census, sorry, was 2001 and so the figures are kind of a little bit old now but I was staggered by this. In the, in the, in the census in 2001, of people in Rotherham describe themselves as Christian 79% of people in Rotherham tick the box on the census form that said I'm a Christian Uh, I I wonder where they are (laughs) the churches are not very full it's possible to live even though you say one thing it's possible to live With no fear of God. To live like an atheist. And that's a challenge isn't it? It's an individual issue. For sure. But isn't it also a cultural issue? There is no fear of God. Before their eyes. That's a cultural thing as well isn't it? I'm thinking of uh, old Abraham in the Old Testament. You know Abraham? He went to Egypt. Because there was a famine. In Canaan. And he was very frightened about what the Egyptians would do to his wife. And he says to himself in Genesis chapter 20, There is no fear of God in this place. No one fears God here. And it frightened him. And so he went off and told a whole load of lies about who his wife was. Which wasn't a good plan. But it was, he said, there's no fear of God here. So to be clear at the beginning then, this is a paradox, apparently... But it isn't really a paradox. We're not here in the realms of slavish, cringing fear of God. But when the Bible speaks about fear of the Lord, we're really talking about reverence and respect and awe for the living God. And Peter here is not hesitating to include this as a very important dynamic. For a Christian, a normal Christian life should have this element, amongst other things as we've seen, of the fear of the Lord being there. Let's move on to another uh, idea. I want to suggest to you one of the quotes we uh, read, touched on this, that fearing God is actually the antidote to all other kinds of fear. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? One of our problems, I know one of my problems is that I'm often afraid of all the wrong things. Um, but, but yet not so afraid to offend God. Life often is all about me rather than about Him. We can be afraid of things going wrong. We can be afraid of losing our health. We can be afraid of money issues. We can be afraid of being unpopular. We can be afraid of being found out. We could be afraid to let people really know the real us. We could be afraid to follow Jesus because of what other people might say. But in all of these fears, we're not really concerned with what God thinks. But more about what we feel and think. We're experts, aren't we, at being self-centred. But find it impossible to be God-centred. I want to just dwell on this for a, a few moments. and um, That clock has stopped, hasn't it? It's not half ten, is it? That's good to know. It's not half ten. We'll ignore that clock and kind of look at the watch. Just um, just as we think this through, just go, keep your finger again in one Peter, but just go back to um, Luke's Gospel in chapter 12. Luke's Gospel in chapter 12. One way of looking at this chapter is that it's all about anxiety. Luke chapter 12, Jesus seems to deal with a whole series of things that would be a worry to people. And um, the reason I'm going here is because verse 5 specifically talks about fearing the Lord. But let's just look through. This chapter, the thing the anxiety that drove the Pharisees in verse one, I suppose there, Jesus said he's not really speaking to the Pharisees, be on your guard against the East of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? It is wanting others to think something about us that isn't true, isn't it? So we're talking about the anxiety of wanting to look the part and maybe give the impression that something is true when it isn't really true the Pharisees were very anxious about losing face and Jesus says you can't hide from God the things that you do in secret will one day be revealed and that's a pretty scary thought isn't it but that's one anxiety that we can have I want to look the part then uh, Jesus moves on to talking about being anxious about coming to harm and he says in verse 4 I tell you my friends don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more I'll show you who you should fear fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell I thought that went down well with the crowd radical teaching of Jesus what? Did, did, I, did I just hear Jesus right don't fear the one that can hurt you physically you should fear the one who has the power to determine your eternal destiny but then Jesus goes on to say some amazing things Jesus isn't just kind of trying to frighten them here because he then goes on to say yes I tell you fear him are not five sparrows sold for two pence yet not one of them is forgotten by God indeed the very hairs of your head are all numbered don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. There it is. The paradox is right there in that verse, isn't it? Fear him, but don't be afraid. We'll come back to that. So we can fear coming to harm. God is the one who has real power and he cares for you. Last week I was telling you about a conference I went to about some people who do church in very, what we would call, rough areas. There was a guy there... He was a minister of a church on a council estate. And I told you last week, he said, he just sounded to me like a Cockney wire boy, but he, he said, once a year I get mugged. Every week I'm hearing of knife crime. People have vicious dogs that they ill-treat just so they'll be more vicious, so that they'll be protected. And they're doing church on a council estate. He said, I don't really want to live there, but that's where God has called me. They've seen people come to Jesus and he said, You know, the one thing that I need to teach these people is the truth that God is sovereign. These people need to understand that their physical welfare is not in the hands of people who've got knives, but is ultimately in the hands of God. And nothing can happen to anyone unless God allows it. He is sovereign, He is king. It's a difficult truth for us to accommodate that. But the, the opposite of that is that God isn't sovereign. There's no comfort whatsoever for us in that, is there? God is sovereign. He is in control. And he cares for us. What about uh, some other anxieties? What about what others will say? In this 8, Jesus goes on to talk about the idea of shame. Sometimes we're tempted to fudge our Christian Faith, because we're worried about what people will say about us. Jesus says, He who disowns me before man will be disowned before the angels of God. It's a challenge that isn't it? The anxiety of knowing shame. If you disown me now, I'll disown you then. What Jesus is saying is what is most more important to you? The esteem of other humans or the esteem of Christ there's a cost to being a Christian in that sense the worry of what other people think of you what about about coping this is not all areas of coping but in verse 11 he addresses his disciples' worry about how will we cope when we're persecuted and we're dragged into court and people are asking us to and Jesus says don't worry about that because God himself will help you To cope and give you the words to say. There's a rude interruption by someone in the crowd. Who's not really been listening to what Jesus has been saying. All he can think about is the inheritance. Tell my brother to give me the money. Show me the money. Jesus has been talking about hell and eternity. And all these big things. And this guy just interrupts. And says, I want the cash. But Jesus gets back to the theme of worry in verse 22. And there's another anxiety there. What about my needs being provided for? All of these things. Our anxieties for us. One thing that struck me when I was looking at this, you know, Peter himself, he's writing this letter that we're looking at. Did he not know all of this? Peter, Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me tonight. And Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. I would die for you, Jesus. We've been together for three years. You're amazing. I would die for you. And within a few hours, he's warming his hands by fire. And a servant girl comes, recognises his northern accent and says, You're one of these people following Jesus, aren't you? And it says he called down cases from heaven. And denied that he even knew Jesus. Peter knew what it was to cower in fear for a servant girl. And here he is writing this letter we know what it is don't we to fear we can all fear different kinds of things but you know the truth about fears they show where our heart really is don't they our anxieties and fears show what our hearts really crave where our heart what our hearts are really in love with And when we fear the Lord in a true biblical sense, all of these other fears begin to fade away when God is first in our hearts. It's hard, it's a challenge. But to fear God is the antidote to all of these other craven fears. There's another psalm in the Old Testament um, you don't need to turn to it but if you make a notes Psalm 56 and the psalmist there uh, talks about this uh, very idea and we'll just, I'll just give you this verse before we move on Psalm 56 this is a psalm of David when he was in great trouble and this is what he says when I am afraid I will trust in you In God whose word I praise in God I trust I will not be afraid what can mortal man do to me? He says it again later in the psalm He feared God and it protected him from fearing man It's an antidote So that's another thing I like to say So here's here's back to our kind of main flow We've uh, said That it's not being afraid of God, Um, it's not it's being afraid of offending Him. It isn't. uh, It it is the sense of uh, being an antidote uh, to all other fears. But the last heading I've got here before we move on, it's the fear, isn't it, of hoping in the wrong things. This is the fear that Peter's talking about. And I want to challenge you with this: when when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it is the fear of living as if God were not there and the connection with hope Peter has already been saying you've been born into a living hope live in hope, live in holiness the fear part is to fear to live in a way that isn't centred on God that's the fear that he's talking about that should worry us that is the one fear that should dominate us more than any other fear is my life centered on God? Is that what you worry about? John Piper, an American writer, says this When we are tempted to conduct, in our, to conduct ourselves in a way that would show that our hope is in money rather than God, we should fear. When we are tempted to act in a way that would show that our hope is in the pleasure of pornography, Instead of God. We should fear. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee fornication. He meant. Fear what it would mean. About where your hope is. If you commit fornication. And it was the same spirit that Jesus had when he said. If your eye causes you to sin. Pluck it out. It is better for you to enter life with one eye. Than with two to be cast into hell. Fear living in ways that betray your lack of satisfaction in God. Have you got that? Can you make that connection? The fear of the Lord is a fear to let him down. A fear of living in a way that shows to other people and to him that you love something else more than you love him. If we're going to be afraid of anything... Peter is saying we should be afraid of that more than anything else. The great issue, I suppose, in our culture is that we ignore how crucial this issue of fear is for our spiritual health. It isn't cool to be fearful, is it? It, It's kind of cool to be free and all all of that kind of stuff. Peter here says, think about your heart and life and live with a godly fear the writer says this this fear of god is a godly carefulness which includes a distrust of myself a tender conscience a vigilance against temptation a constant avoidance of things which would deplease god and a continual apprehension of the deceitfulness of my old nature godly fear then is not the cringing fear of a slave before his master but the loving reverence of a child before his father. It is not a fear of judgment, but a fear of disappointing him and sinning against his love. Do you remember um, Joseph and his many coat of many colours? It's been made famous with the musical. I won't sing it. But uh, Joseph, he had a bad life, didn't he, to start off with? His brothers hated him and sold him as a slave. He gets a job working as a slave with a guy who really respects him. Puts him in charge of all the house. But the wife takes a side to him. And she's trying to encourage him to come to bed with her. And what was Joseph's answer? It says in Genesis 39 verse 9. Joseph says to her, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God he feared the Lord that's what protected him when temptation came how could I do such a thing and sin against my God well we were talking about triangles and um, with the other two headings living hope, living holiness living fear and I want to give you the two supporting ideas this as well. Here's my little piece of Toblerone. And um, if anyone wants to contribute any Toblerone to uh, reminders of this, you'd be very welcome to do that. Live in fear. Just going to verse 17 then, here we are. I want you to see that this phrase, the end of verse 17, is sandwiched between two reasons that support that phrase in verse 17 Peter gives the first reason since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear so you can make that connection since the first thing is true this is how you should live so that's the first reason but the second reason is there afterwards the other half of the sandwich verse 18 for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver gold that you were redeemed so there's two supporting ideas there like there have been for the other two Peter's saying live in fear for two reasons so let's look at the first the first reason that he gives is that God is impartial and uh, he judges every human being in the same way and I think there's an encouragement in that and also a scariness in that Let's just break this down. It's true, isn't it, that as human beings, we make value judgments every day, all the time. Something good, bad, different. We talk about it, and we're always kind of putting things in order, aren't we, and making value judgment about whether a thing's good or bad. I want you to realize that that comes with being human, and it's very normal, but it firstly, the reason it's true of humans is because it's true of God if you go back to the very beginning of the bible creation every single day God saw what he had made he looks out with his eyes and he sees what he's made and what what did God do he said it was good what is God doing there he's making a value judgment he's looking out and he's going wow that's fantastic That, absolutely amazing and it is That's exactly how we feel when we look out into this creation and universe and we think, awesome, wow. God saw what he'd made and he made a value judgment. He didn't sit there thinking, I'm going to wrap this up and have another go. It's rubbish. I'll, I'll go back to college and learn how to create properly. He looked at what he'd made and he went, wow, that's good. That is good. Value judgment. It's amazing that when he gets to the end, the crown and glory of all God's creation was human life. And when God then looks at creation on the last day, human beings included, God looks and he makes a value and he said, Wow, that is very good. That is very good. God makes value judgments. I want you to see also that God is totally fair and completely unbiased and totally objective in his value judgments. We're not. It comes with being human. We make some value judgments. We have to sanity check them. But God is God. His vision is 2020. He sees into the secret places of our hearts. And when he makes value judgments, they are totally fair and unbiased. Romans chapter 2 verse 2, if you are making notes, is a verse for you to check on. My point is, you can't pull the wool over this judge's eyes and neither can I it's interesting to just think about the language Peter uses here let's see if you can get this there's a a Hebrew idea um, and it's called to receive the face of someone Okay, this is a Hebrew kind of colloquialism if I can say that To receive the face of someone, this is what it means, okay? If you went to see someone, really a noble person, you would go into their presence and you would bow very low. Your face would be to the ground. You wouldn't look up. And if the person was pleased with you, they would gently kneel down and they would lift up your head. They would receive your face. And you would know then that the person had welcomed you into their presence. Okay? That's what it means to receive someone's face that Hebrew colloquialism is behind the Greek word that Peter uses here God does not receive people's face in the sense that he, it, it, it's kind of the opposite of this colloquialism he, he's, he's very impartial outward appearance, wealth, culture social position, family background, education one's beauty, intellect all of those things that can sway the opinions of man will not sway God's opinion you can't bribe him and you can't affect his objective appraisal of your character he will not receive face in the sense of being corrupt thank God that he does receive face because of what Jesus has done for us God is looking on, taking notice of all and he sees our hearts whether there is integrity of purpose, intelligence of mind, and desire of heart to please him. I'm not sure this is very popular, but here it is. The reason we should live in fear is because God is a fair and an impartial judge. That's the reason Peter gives. I want you to notice two things here though the standard isn't lower. Because of their trials, have you noticed that Peter's writing here to people? In the first session, we looked at the kind of things these people were suffering in the Roman Empire under the Emperor Nero. You might think that Peter would write to them and say, "I'll write to you again in six months when it's all blown over." But for now, hide away in your homes, switch off, take it easy, don't worry about being a Christian. You've got enough on your plates. But he doesn't do that, does he? He writes to them this kind of detailed letter glorying in their salvation and he doesn't lower the standard because they're having difficulties do you know what in my own heart I see this all the time surely God I know that God will be fair with everyone else he'll be fair with you but I'm sure he's going to treat me differently I've been in this difficulty and that difficulty God's going to make allowances for me. I know he won't do it for everyone else, but he will for me. Is that not how we think? The standard doesn't really apply to me. God will kind of treat me differently. What Peter's trying to remind them of is, this is inescapable. You need to fear the Lord, because he is totally and utterly fair and objective. And you need to have dealings with him that are not based on your opinions of other people, But your relationship with Him. Neither is the standard lower because of God's kindness. Notice that Peter says, Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, we mustn't forget who our Father is and excuse our failures and sins by saying, Well, God's merciful, He's my Father, and I'm free. In fact, what father doesn't discipline his children? It says that in Hebrews chapter 12. God loves you and he will discipline you. Because he loves you. So there's the first reason that Peter gives. Since you call on a father who is fair. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. The second thing, the second reason that he gives. Is this, that. Your salvation has been achieved at great cost. The blood of Jesus Christ has been spilt so that you could be redeemed. Purchased, that means really. Bought by God at the cost of the life of his son. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a bit back to front. Should we not be saying, actually, the blood of Jesus is precious, God has redeemed me, so there's no need to fear? Does that seem like a back-to-front reason to you? Peter actually says, this is a reason to live in fear. Surely it's a reason not to fear, isn't it? There's a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 130, verse 4, which says, With you there is forgiveness therefore you are feared why is it that way around surely it should be with you there is forgiveness so I'm not afraid of anything like to make you think well Peter here I want to suggest there's a difference here to Mark out. I don't think Peter here is speaking primarily about forgiveness It is a great thing, and it is true, that the death of Jesus is what purchases our salvation and brings about forgiveness and peace and a relationship with God. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. The death of Jesus is also intended to transform your life. It isn't just about pardon, it is also about power because look at what he says it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the what from your sins he doesn't say that it's true in other places that says that you've been redeemed from a futile way of living God has paid a great price to enable you not to be dominated by your past and to be free To live a transformed life in his power. Do you know as Christians we forget this. We preach forgiveness as if God's just in the business of letting people off. But that's only half the gospel. If that was the gospel, we'd be miserable. The gospel includes God letting people off and lifting them up to be what they can't be in their own strength. The gospel is about pardon and power, forgiveness and transformation. Both of those things are the gift of God. And that's why Peter says here, you should fear because you've been bought at a great price so that your life can be transformed. And what does it say about your view of what Jesus has done for you if you live as if it doesn't matter? You should fear that. When you live carelessly, what it says is, I don't care about the blood of Jesus being spilt for me. It makes no difference to the way I live. I couldn't give a monkey's really. I'm just going to go on and live life in my way. if If the blood of Jesus means nothing to you, you should be afraid, be very afraid. Because that shows a heart that hasn't been touched or a heart that has forgotten what was once true for it. He has called you and set you apart to be a new person. And the issue here is if God has secured that transformation at the cost of the blood of his son, we should really fear living in an untransformed way. If these things don't impact and change the way you hope in God and live day to day, then it shows that something else is more important to you than God is. And if that's true for you you should be afraid. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament the writer there talks about treating the blood of Jesus as an unholy, unworthy thing trampling it underfoot and when we live in a way that's careless that's exactly what we do. So to live in fear why? Why? because god is objective and fair and impartial and because god has sent a savior whose blood has been spilled so that you can live a new kind of life in his power live in hope live in holiness and live in fear we've done all these triangles that we've been looking at bits of told totally around they all really point to the same thing and I think they point to this it is, it is time for these people and for us to wake up it's time to stop being afraid of the wrong things and centre our lives on God Christian truth isn't there to lull us to sleep and make us flabby but Christian truth is there to stir our hearts to be full of hope Full of holiness and full of godly fear. Let me close with this. The writer's Hebrews says, thinking about the old testament, but talking to us, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast and to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they couldn't bear what was commanded the sight was so terrifying that Moses said I am trembling with fear but you you haven't come to that mountain you've come to another mountain you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem to the city of the living God You've come to him. Peter is saying. Be what you really are. Don't live carelessly. But live in hope. Live in holiness. And live your lives here. As strangers. In reverent fear.